0: Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless.
1: Lord, again, we uh, come to you and we come to a a new book for us, the the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes God, meet us where we are. I know some of us come to this space today with great doubts about you or about your word, whether it's true or good or beautiful. Some of us come with great hope and hope of what our lives could be, of, of what you're doing in the world. Come, some come today, Lord, with faith, with love. God, I pray that you'd meet us where we are, that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would unstop our ears that are so prone to being clogged up with the sounds of our worries, uh, the cares of this world, Lord, unstop them that we might hear from you this morning. And show us Jesus, show us the beauty of our Lord, we pray in his name, amen. All right, so um, one of the real gifts of being a pastor, there are many. There are trials of being a pastor, like this cord right here. There are a lot of, lots of gifts of being a pastor, and I think one of the gifts that I especially love is that I get to hear many of your stories, uh, the things that move you in life, uh, the events that took place in your life that, that shaped you and sort of put you on a new trajectory for being in the world in a sort of a different and fresh way. Um, just last weekend was our intro to, to Second City Church, and um, Chuck Bagley mentioned with great detail the illustration that was given on a missions trip when he gave his life to Jesus with, with, with stunning detail. We were all kind of, wow, you knew that perfectly. And why? Because, of course, the event was known perfectly because it had such a huge effect on his being in the world and what he was going to be called to do with his life. Um, just after he shared that, Carrie Glendenning told of, how her whole family went on a missions trip down to Costa Rica when she was 14. And when she was down there, she was getting on the plane to come back and she said she was just full of tears. She didn't want to leave. She felt, and her parents said, I mean, you're only 14, girl. I don't know that she said it like that. That's my rendition of it. Um, But she said, how do you know that the Lord is calling you now to give your life to care for the needy and for the poor and for the afflicted? But she knew She knew that that event at that time sent her on a trajectory for her life. Something that just sort of says, this is where you're going. I can tell you many other stories of your own lives. I mean, as I look out on your faces, I know some of your stories and how you had events that hit you hard. And because of that, your life was changed. It was changed forever. Think about something like this. This is just a statistic, but it sort of bears witness to this. After the tragedy of 9-11, which happened 21 years ago next Sunday, that year, 181,500 Americans enlisted in the armed services. It was like a record year, right? Um, That year, 72,900 joined the reserves. And just that event changed the course of their lives. Something that hit them and it changed where they were going, what they were to be about. Um, I remember very clearly, and this was years before I met my wife who's from Louisiana, I remember very clearly watching the storm Katrina come ashore and devastate New Orleans. Uh, it's estimated that $125 billion worth of damage happened because of Katrina. And then one of my professors actually, who grew up in Baton Rouge, um, he got a group of us, a small group of us together, to make our way down the Mississippi from St. Louis, where I was in seminary, down to New Orleans. And we got chainsaws, and we started cutting down trees that had fallen on, on homes. We started gutting moldy walls from the homes. And I just remember that watching that on the TV happen, that when my, when my professor said, Hey, Peter, do you want to come down to New Orleans for a long weekend and help? I was like, yes, sign me up. No question. Having that event sort of shaped where I was going. So here's the question for you this morning. What grabs a hold of your heart? What grabs a hold of your heart? I'm sure that you can name something that has made you stop and wonder, what is God calling me to do in the world? Who's he he calling me to be in the world? What grabs a hold of your heart? So this, this fall, we're going to look at this book of Nehemiah together. Um, if you've been with us, maybe you know this, but every other fall, we, we look at a New Testament epistle or an Old Testament book. And we have an Advent series, and we look at the Gospels in the spring. We look at uh, a series over Eastertide, and we look at the Psalms. We just looked at Psalm 56 last Sunday. We've made it through that many as a church together. But we're back in the Old Testament, and we're looking at the book of Nehemiah And Nehemiah is actually, it's a very ancient book. It's a really interesting, I think you're going to love Nehemiah. There's a lot of first-person stuff. There are some parts that we're going to sort of go quickly over that just name lots of names. Um, But there's lots of detail, there's lots of intrigue. And it's an old book, but I want to suggest to you it's still very relevant. And actually, it's the youngest of the Old Testament historical books. So even though it feels like a long ways away, which it is about, it was written about 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago, it's actually the newest of the Old Testament historical books. But it's a very relevant book. Um, Daniel Rowland, maybe some of you know that name. Daniel Rowland was one of the great preachers in Wales during the Welsh revival that was happening actually at the same time as the first great awakening in the U.S. Think of, uh, he's a contemporary of George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers. So 1730s, 1740s in Wales. This is what he wrote. He said, if you're a backslider, read Hebrews. If you're devotional, read the Psalms. If you're prone to being rebellious, read Joshua and Judges. This is good advice. (laughs) Write this down or ask me for the quote later. But if you want to accomplish great things, read Nehemiah. If you want to accomplish great things, read Nehemiah. And Nehemiah begins where so many great things begin, with a really broken situation with a broken heart. Okay, a broken situation. And I hope you can see just how incredibly broken this, situa- this situation is. Um, we, we get glimpses of how broken this situation is by considering the time it's mentioned, by considering the place and by considering the people, and then actually some of the very details that are said. But, but let me read for you again verses 1 and 2. So it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with, a cert- with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exiles, and concerning Jerusalem. All right, so first, the time that's mentioned, the very first thing that's said is that this happens in the 20th year. Now, what you should be asking is, what, 20th year of what? 20th year of Nehemiah's life? Uh, 20th year of being in exile? 20th, what, what are you talking about? 20th year of what? How do we come sort of date this? Um, and really, there's actually only one good answer to that. There's one answer that sort of makes sense. Of the situation. And, and that answer is that it's the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. So, so right away, you have Nehemiah writing a, a book to the Jewish population, writing it in Hebrew, and he's dating the date based on the ruling of a foreign king. Um, right away, what's happening is that we are reminded of something. And that's that the Jews do not have their own king. They are under the reign of someone else. And even that someone else has determined how they count their days and how they count their years and their months. Even their time is being dictated by someone else. It's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This year would have been year 445 initially. Uh, And then actually in the next chapter, chapter 2, it's going to jump into what we would consider the year 444 BC. But how they organized time, it would have been the same year because they did it differently. Um, you might remember a couple years back, we looked at the book of Daniel. And we heard there the stories of the fall of Jerusalem. You, might, you probably remember this. The Babylonians coming in in 597 initially and, 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 and taking over the southern kingdom. And then actually coming back in 586 and destroying the very temple of the Lord. It was on Mount Zion. Okay, so when when you think of this, maybe we we also talked about how actually if you go even farther back in 721, the Assyrians had taken away the 10 northern tribes of Israel. But when you start to think about this, what we're talking not about here is the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but we're actually talking about the Persians, which is to say, okay, now, and you're actually almost 300 years past that initial, uh, you know, taking away the 10 northern tribes. So what we have is 300 years of God's people essentially not being the 12 tribes of Israel in Israel under their own authority. And what we, well, it's not just a long time that's happening, but what we actually have is these three major sort of global superpowers. And Israel's just sort of this pawn that they're moving around. Right? Initially, they're under the reign of the Assyrians. Well, who takes over the Assyrians? The Babylonians. Okay, what happens with the Babylonians? The Persians. And Israel's just finding themselves sort of lost wandering. What I'm suggesting to you is the date alone, a small detail is telling you this is a really broken situation. But where is uh, Nehemiah? Where's Nehemiah find himself? Well, it says that he's in Susa, the citadel. It was the capital. It was actually more the summer capital for the king of Persia. Um, But Susa would have been at what is now the northern part of the Persian Gulf. If you know your ancient Near Near Eastern geography, which I'm sure all of us do, Mediterranean, Israel, Persian Gulf, Babylon's like right here, and Susa's over here. Y'all got that? You got that. Here's my point is that not only is, is Israel actually being put under king after king after king after global power after global power after global power, but what we're finding is that actually the people and the place is getting farther away from Jerusalem. They're not coming closer. Susa's farther east than Babylon. If you think of Daniel, you know, being faithful in Babylon, here's Nehemiah being faithful, but farther away. You're, and you're longing, you're saying, God, aren't you supposed to be bringing your people back to their home? Back to where they can worship you? What I'm suggesting to you is that even the little details of the places here are saying this is a broken situation. This is not how it's meant to be. And finally, um, if you notice just the people, um, verse 2 tells us that Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, came to him with men from Judah. Um, Hanani, we don't know... If this is like brother, like my brothers, Jeremy and Jonathan and Ethan. Um, But we think that it's probably the case. This is a word that is certainly used for kinfolk at the very least. This would have been somebody that was related to Nehemiah. But what we notice is that these people are coming uh, from Judah. And Judah was actually, though it was still under Persia, it was also sort of under again Samaria. You'll remember the story of Jesus with the, the uh, the Samaritan woman at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So the Samaritans there were actually in control of Judah at the time. And what, what, what should have happened, actually, is that there would have been people that would have, were going with the people from Judah over to meet with Nehemiah and Susa. But they would have actually had to sort of sneak out is what's going on here. Okay, so all of these little details, what I'm suggesting to you is all of these details of the time and of the place and of the people, all they're saying is this is a bad situation it's a broken situation. This is not how it's meant to be. If you were part of Israel, you would have said, what is going on? Why is it that centuries now of being subjugated to other rulers, why is this our story? What's going on? And to add all this, this is actually what this group of people, um, Hannah and I and the Judeans that came with, it with him, this is what they said, uh, verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And again, okay, if you know some of the history that's going on, this is not talking about the initial destruction by the Babylonians of the walls in 597. 597. It's not talking about that. If you know, actually, you know, Ezra actually goes along with two other books. Sorry, Nehemiah goes along with two other books. One of them is Ezra and then Esther. Um, You'll maybe remember that in the book of Ezra, in chapter four, there's actually conflict and there's all that stuff going on there too. It's not talking about that either. Nobody thinks it's talking about that. This is talking about another situation. Yet again, when God's people have tried to rebuild this wall, it's been taken down again. And I want you to think about this. Okay, in in the ancient world, Um, most cities of any significance would have had a wall around it. Why would they have had a wall? For safety, right? For protection. Uh, For their life to have a future beyond sort of the immediate, they would build walls around the cities. And so what's happening here is that you have these people that are living back in Jerusalem, and even in their attempts of just trying to stay alive, to, to sort of promote a stability within their families and within their, in their communities. It just keeps getting taken down again and again and again. And they, what it says is they're just full of trouble and they're full of shame. Which, again, you know this, right? I mean, how often do you do the same thing and you don't, get, you, you don't get where you're going? And then you do the same thing again and it doesn't happen. You do the same thing again and eventually you go, you know what? I don't know if I have any gifts in this world. I don't know what in the world I'm called to. What has God gifted me with? Because I try this and I try that. And it just gets nowhere. What good am I? Full of shame. This is the situation that these people find themselves in. I'm sure you can see it. I'm sure you can sort of feel it and hear it. All the details here, uh, the time and the place and the people, the little note, all of it is saying this is a broken situation. The situation is full of fear. It's full of trouble. It's full of shame. There's a great distance. It's broken, all of it. And the right response, really, to this broken situation is a broken heart. And that's actually where we see this this narrative move. And so, okay, look at verse 4. It says this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before, God, before the God of heaven. Which is to say, what Nehemiah did when he engaged with this broken situation is he sat in lament. Lament. Lament, you, you, could, you could say it like this. Lament is uh, naming the brokenness of the situation and it's sitting in it. So he names it. He names how it hurts. He names the trouble of it. He names the shame of it. That's what it says. They're full of trouble and they're full of shame. But I think the really remarkable thing here, which feels a little bit counterintuitive, especially if you think of Nehemiah as the book, if you want to get something done, read Nehemiah. And what it says is he just sat down and he wept and he mourned for 10 minutes. Nobody's correcting me. I don't know if y'all are paying attention. It says for days. It says for days. That's too long for me. He sits, because the pain is so great, he sits in the pain for a long time. He doesn't brush it aside. He just kind of sits in the pain of it for days. And actually, what we know is that it's likely actually months, because chapter 2 is going to pick up for us about four to five months later when he actually begins to act. So he's sitting there, and he's in the trouble, and he's in the shame of it all, and he's lamenting. Uh, a lot of you know that the largest category of psalms, you know, which is the song book of the Bible, it's the prayer book of the Bible. It's the, it's the book in the Bible that helps us put words to how we're to engage with God, right? gives us language how to address God. The largest category of psalms in the Bible is the category of lament. Naming what's wrong with the world and orienting it towards God, crying out towards God, naming the brokenness and the trouble and the shame and sitting in it, allowing its brokenness to affect you, to be experienced. This is another detail, actually, that is worth noting here. He, he experiences the brokenness of the situation. He doesn't just name in it and weep in it. But did you notice that he fasts? He fasts. One of the practices of the Jewish people that you, again, actually see in the book of Esther, the next book, is that Mordecai, when he finds out what's going to happen to the Jews, he sits in sackcloth, which is, you know, those like big um, bags of uh, coffee beans before they're roasted. Think of that stuff. It's just scratchy. Sackcloth and ashes. And actually, oftentimes, a Jewish person would shave their head bald, not because it looks cool, though it does, but to mourn. And, to sh- and, and shave their face, shave their beard off. Because what, what is being taught in these things is that you're not actually just supposed to feel it, but part of what's happening is that you're actually supposed to experience the brokenness because you're owning the situation with your brothers and sisters. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's lamenting. He has a broken heart for a broken situation. And this broken heart, heart for this broken situation is not just felt but it's experienced it's not just known in the head but it's experienced with the body now here's what you cannot miss none of this is done outside of life with god because the main thing of this chapter is that he directs it all godward just like the psalms teach us he directs the whole situation up towards the lord he offers it all up in prayer Which is to say, Nehemiah isn't just sitting in the pain of it all, though he is doing that. Um, he's not just thinking of the situation, though he's doing that. We know he's thought it through pretty well, actually, in the next chapter. He's not just experiencing it through fasting and, and likely sackcloth and ashes and these other things that we're not given the details of. Though that we know that was culturally what would have happened. He is doing that, but that's not all he is doing. All of this is oriented towards the Lord in prayer. All this situation of mourning and brokenness and broken heart is offered up to God. It's oriented towards him. Okay, I want to I um, give you sort of a modern day experience, at least in my own life. Now, this is very practical. Um, I look around at our building and our situation as a church and uh, we saw, we've seen the need of a, of a school here and it's been started and it's actually going into its seventh year, right? Um, but I look at our building and I look at, gosh, our, our elevator situation alone. And even that just feels a little bit overwhelming to me. Um, just to give you a, a, a little glimpse into it, the three different uh, estimates we've gotten range from 100,000 to fix it to 250,000. And the 250 is from the people that seem to know the most. Um, that feels overwhelming in it sense, those kinds of numbers a little bit, especially with just something like that. But then I think of all the repairs that we have to make every single year on our boiler and on our pipes. And I think of how inefficient all of these windows are and how expensive it is to run window units and, and all this sort of stuff. And then I think actually back on the glory days of our church. Do you all know that you're actually sitting in the original Verbeck Elementary? This is where we are. That well, over there, there's a little bump right after that wall there. That would have been the, the sort of the edge of that building. You can see a picture of it on a historical marker on the corner there, Green and Verbeck. It's a beautiful old building. And this building would have been full of education for years and years and years. Just like actually right, if you're if you right across Green Street from Little Amps down, you know, down at Green and Minnick, that building used to be the neighborhood school for that part of the neighborhood because there were so many children in the neighborhood. So we had to have a neighborhood school for here and a neighborhood school for there. And, a you know, and that was just, there was so much life in the city. And actually, if you look back on this church, Second Church, that you know, it was initially the, the, church that, the older church that merged a dozen years ago, started in 1864. Do you know that Second Church actually started two different churches? One of them was Fourth Reformed up on Allison Hill. It's no longer alive. The other one is St. John's. And St. John's was started as a Bible study from this church in the 1890s. And it actually, the building is one of the churches that's at the corner of McClay and 4th Street. That's one of the church plants from Second Church. Uh, do you know that in actually the middle part of this century, this church had a membership of 1,200 people? Like, 1,200 people. I am like, I don't want that many people, actually. <laughs> I want that many people to worship God, but that's a lot. Uh, but it's easy to go, man, look at these glory days and look at like, we, you know, our elevator just breaking and just sort of go. You know what? This is so much. There's so much, and there's so much good to do. There's so much need in the world. There's so much brokenness in the world. There's so much need for Jesus. There's so much need for education. There's so much need for spaces for people to gather together and to encourage one another to faith and good deeds. And yet, it all just feels like so much. And it has to be acknowledged that that's the case okay that's where i'm going you have to acknowledge it you have to name it and in some ways you have to sit in it for a little while and let it wash over you but what the scriptures seem to tell us time and time again is that a broken situation and a broken heart don't exist in a vacuum but they're known by the lord and the lord cares for them and he longs when his people offer them up to him and say lord would you do something I want to be a worker for you. Send me out. But Lord, would you hear this situation? Would you know it? Would you meet us in it? This is what's going on here. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear this prayer in that situation. But I want you to listen to a couple things. Nehemiah owns the situation as part of his own doing. Um. Which I will just say, the glory days of this church happened before the race riots of the 60s and before the flood. But when most people decided, you know what, we're done with the city, we're going to leave. We're out of here. Okay. Nehemiah says that sort of part, of part of what's happening in this is his own doing. He confesses sin, he confesses the sins of his father, but he pleads for the Lord to have mercy. And, and this is a great prayer for us all to pray, to take this prayer and say, Lord, this, teach me how to pray through this. So I want you to listen to this, how Nehemiah lays the situation before the Lord. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open." to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. To your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. You see, he directs this towards God. He directs this situation towards God. We're going to see how he goes before the king next week. But he directs this situation towards God. And and I I, I think it's important that we just kind of sit in this reality that here's this leader that everyone says if you want to learn leadership and you want to get something done, spend some time in the book of Nehemiah. But what he does is he sits for days and likely for months and he prays and he directs it all towards God. I think it's important that we acknowledge the difficulty of prayer. Does anybody have a hard time praying? I mean, yes. Okay. um, Alexander White, some of you might know him. He was a Scottish pastor in the um, mid-19th century. He said, there is nothing we're so bad at all our days than prayer. Um, This is even better. Um, Thomas Shepard, who was one of the great New England Puritans, and he was the first president of Harvard, he said this, there are times in my life that I would rather die than pray very honest, right? You know sometimes the Lord is calling you to pray, and you're just like, I want to go ride my bike or cook or anything. I would rather do anything right now than pray. But in this book, it it seems to be telling us from the get-go that in the broken situations of our lives that touch and break our hearts, one of the first things we need to do is say, Lord, I'm going to offer it to you. And as I do so, meet me in this situation and act. It's true. It's true that prayer is incredibly difficult, and frankly, it's one of the easiest things, and it's one of the most expected things that pastors tell people, you know. Take it to the Lord in prayer, and everybody goes, yeah. And then we all go, that's way harder than I think. But why are we to do this? Why does it take months for him to go to King Artaxerxes? Partly because we want the Lord to actually know the brokenness of a situation, we want He want Him to know the brokenness of our hearts. And I just want to remind you, as sort of as a way of closing, the Lord knows it. The Lord knows it all completely. He knows the broken situation. He knows your broken heart. He longs for you to bring it to Him. But the Lord, if there's anything that the Bible tells us again and again and again, is that the Lord knows it. He knows it perfectly. Um, I want you to think, this is a cry over Jerusalem, right? It actually mentions how far away from Jerusalem they are, how far these Judeans had traveled um, from Jerusalem. Think of our Lord. He cries over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now he says, you know, you who kill the prophets. But he's longing for them. He's longing for the broken situation that Jerusalem finds itself in, even when he is here on earth. Um, Did not Jesus himself know the extent of a broken world? Because he himself... Uh, Isaiah 53 tells us that he was smitten and stricken. He was afflicted. He was one that wasn't easy to look upon. Um, Did not Jesus know the powers of superpowers fighting over him? I mean, Rome killed him, right? But we also know that there's this conflict with religious leaders. Jesus finds himself in the tug of war of political dynamics. Civic powers, religious powers of his day. Jesus himself knows all of the broken situations in which we find ourselves in. And he knows their effects in the world. He knows our broken hearts. I want you to think about Jesus himself praying in the garden at at Gethsemane. He knows the extent of how much brokenness is in the world and what it costs. Jesus himself knows all this. The Lord himself knows the broken situation and the broken hearts. But it's because he knows it it's, it's because he knows it that he acts. Think of John 3, 16, the famous passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's given because the situation is known. And this is where we have to start with Nehemiah. When we want to accomplish great things, we, go, we need to stop and say, Lord, there's all this stuff going on. But unless you are in it, it goes nowhere. Unless you own the brokenness of it, nothing's going to happen. And so this, I mean, this is a good place for us as a community together as we think of where we go and what we do as a community, as a church. But it's necessary for you as an individual also. Lord, show me the place where my heart breaks for the broken situation of the world. That's a great place to begin. By the way, if you're thinking about, like, what am I called to do? Ask yourself, like, where's my my heartbreak? But you can't end with where's my heartbreak. Bring it all to the Lord and say, Lord, act. Lord, do. Lord, be present. Lord, meet me. And the consistent message of Scripture and the fact of Christ among us in his incarnation and in his cross and his crucifixion and his resurrection is that, yes, God will meet us in that place. He will be with us. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we uh, enter into the book of Nehemiah, Lord, I pray that you would give us the delight for these old stories. And I pray, Lord, that we would even learn from saints of old like Nehemiah. And I pray that we would be able to stop and the mess, that we would sit and weep. God, I pray that we wouldn't gloss over the ugly. God, I pray that we would learn to fast and to mourn, to name trouble and shame, to give voice to these things, but to do it all with you, Lord. God, would we we learn the words of the Psalms? Would we learn that there's no joy too great to not be laid before you? They wouldn't cry out to us to clap our hands and to shout, to lay our joys and our delights before you. And there is never a grief that is too great that you will not bear it with us. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. God, would you move among us? Would you give us hearts that break for the brokenness of our world? We think of recent shootings in our own city. We think of the constant anxiety of the world about us. Fears that are real, Lord. Illness. Economic fears. And God, I pray that we as a church collectively and we as individuals who are your sons and your daughters, Lord, that our hearts would break and that as they are broken, you would rebuild them, that you would rebuild them, that our hearts would be offered for for others for the glory of your name and for the good of our world. In your name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.